0: James, steadfast is, the, uh, is kind of the, uh, the word that comes to mind through, for the whole series here. This is kind of the thrust of the book of James. Uh, be steadfast, have a steadfast faith. Uh, we'll look at that a lot today. Uh, that's going to be kind of the, the overarching uh, idea of what does a steadfast faith look like, the working, the working out of a steadfast faith. Uh, the book of James uh, brings to us a, a lot of wisdom regarding this. I'll frame it up a little bit more, but uh, before I get too far down the road, I'd like to just read the Word of God to us. And I will ask you uh, something I want, to, I want to do a little bit more now, is let's read just out of reverence uh, for, for God. I mean, let's, uh, sorry, not read, but let's stand as we read. Um, and, uh, and so if we could stand, and, and, and I will read. You can follow along in your, in your Bibles as well. I'll be reading from uh, James 1, uh, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James is a book for Christians. Uh, it's, uh, it's a book for, for those who uh, are looking for Christ, but definitely a book for those who have found Christ and are trying to figure out what does that actually even mean. I, I, oftentimes, James is compared to or contrasted, I think wrongfully, with uh, the book of Romans. Uh, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans are very much a very detailed explanation of what does faith in Christ mean? Why do I need faith in Christ? What does Christ do for me? How do I become a Christian? Those are really played out in those first chapters in Romans. James, however, James being the, the brother of Jesus, is kind of assuming, uh, really assuming, that we have that knowledge of who Christ is. I mean, kind of strikingly, uh, in the book of James, it doesn't really mention Christ directly. It alludes to him. Uh, it, it assumes him, but it's, it's not really going to just like hail Christ and Jesus. Those, those words aren't really there because it assumes that we are Christians and we're trying to, we're working through our faith. It's going to point us to how we live as Christians today. The big theological term for this is sanctification. If Romans is talking about salvation, how we are saved in Christ, James is talking about sanctification, how we become, through the work of the Spirit and Christ in our lives, how the Word directs us to be holy, to be purified, to be a presentable people before God. So as we kind of read James, it's going to read a little bit differently than other books. It reads like, uh, like a series of Proverbs. It's a lot of, a lot of wisdom, a lot of little snippets of wisdom. We've heard some of that already. We've even heard it talking about gaining wisdom. Uh, what it requires, though, is in this wisdom, it's going to give us a lot of, uh, a lot of commands. And so it requires, uh, I would even say, like a boot camp-like discipline uh, to, to, to be attentive to what it is saying. And then it's reward, though. It reads as a proverb, it requires discipline. If we really apply ourselves to this and, and really apply ourselves to its thought and its application, uh, the reward is what I would consider to be a long view of our faith it's not going to get you those quick returns. Uh, If I do this, then by the end of the day, this will be good. It builds a new, bigger, long-view perspective of our faith, and it's a way in which, as we've read today, we can pursue and remain steadfast in our trials. So if we start here with, I'll just kind of do the first verse all in one big shot. We've covered James, brother of Christ, uh, he's a servant of God. He says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I, I don't know. Uh, this is the English Standard Version. If you have a different version, it may translate that and explain it a little bit more. I'll just go there very very quickly. Uh, the 12 tribes, 12 tribes, that's Israel. Those are the Jews. He's referring to the Jews um, that are in the dispersion. Now, I would love to give you a, a picture here, but it's not necessary and it's probably distracting. Uh, Jesus uh, was ascended uh, in Jerusalem. That's where the ascension happened. So in Jerusalem, then a great persecution comes out. All the Christians who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the Jews who believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Savior that came, these Jews, the one we're talking about, their persecution, they spread. That's what a diaspora is. It's a spreading of people. So these Christians now, these Jewish-turned-Christians, uh, are, are now spreading. A lot of them are going north. Uh, some of them go you know, south and to other places, Archaeology shows us that, they, that there were many strong churches from, from this dispersion in, in, in Egypt in, as far as India. But we go up north. A lot of them uh, we'll read about in other books that Paul visits. He says, oh, there are already a bunch of Christians here. Some of these spread as far as you know uh, Greece uh, and even Rome itself. So these, these, these people are going. Rather than showing you the picture, because I think it's distracting, there's a question that comes up in this. Now, this is Jesus. We just walked with him. We just, we just talked with him. We, we just saw him go up into heaven. We believe in him. We've seen some crazy stuff happen in the book of Acts to prove that this, this guy is real. This, this thing is it. We have this new view, this new faith in Jesus. We have this new faith in Christ. And now the question comes up. So why did everything get harder? <laughs> why are we being persecuted? Why, why isn't life solved? I mean, how many times have we, have we had that same question as they're asking right now? I thought if we became a Christian, life gets better, right? Life gets easier, right? Like my problems with my family are going to go away, right? My problems with work or the questions I'm asking, they're all going to be answered, right? I'm going to maybe, maybe you were told this false gospel, but maybe I won't get sick again. Maybe I'll get more money again. And you're still wanting in that area. Well, these people are asking this question. If Christ is so good, then why is life not awesome <laughs> as I go from here? What is the point of our trials? That's the big question. James is answering this question. He knows they're asking, and he answers it. He goes to verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So pop quiz here. We're just going to repeat. When you meet trials of various kinds, what should your response be? Joy. Well, that's kind of crazy. That's a long view. We're going to, have to, we're going to have to journey through the next verses to figure out why we could possibly have joy in the midst of these. Let's continue. Uh, when you meet trials of various kinds, for, here's the purpose of these, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, our trials are part of God's purposes in our lives. I'll say that again. Our trials are part of God's purposes in our lives. I'm not going to... This is for next week. Uh, James is going to say, God's not throwing bad stuff at you just to be cruel. God's not throwing bad stuff at you uh, just because he's punishing you. So don't go there. That's next week. If you think that, make sure you come back. Or just keep reading is probably the better thing. Um, But what he's talking about right now is he's saying... Our trials aren't outside of God's sovereign, loving hand. There's something to be taught in this. It's actually not even, there's something to be taught, like, let's find the silver lining on the cloud. It's like, this is the cloud. Like, this is the lesson. You are going to have to persevere as Christians. I mean, this, this is something that Jesus says all the time. It's going to get tough. It's going to get tough. And especially now that you're a Christian, you have a faith. You have something you stand on. People are going to test you on that. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And the people now in the diaspora, people like you and I, are asking this question. We're realizing that life as a Christian isn't all sunshine and roses. But there can be, and here's where he goes, there can be joy in the learning. Because joy is the long view. I think sometimes we need, we need to separate this. Um, sometimes we think of joy as happiness. Um, hey, I become a Christian, and all of a sudden my faith makes my family life super awkward, and it's hostile, and people are are, are questioning, what the heck are you doing? This is weird. Like, you actually believe that. Yeah, you get some of those questions. Uh, That's one example. I'm sure there are other examples there. Well, in the moment, that's not happy. Uh, In the moment, that's not a good feeling. In the moment, our faith could seem like uh, it'd be easier. It'd be more comfortable to just kind of I don't know, I guess the word is backslide. (laughs) Uh, It's a step back and say, ah, maybe not. Maybe I'm just going to ease off of this Jesus thing. That that was a little intense. That was a little, little awkward. But he says, if you have that long view, you understand what it means for your salvation. You understand where God is taking us. You understand the new heaven, the new earth, the promises that he will make good on. And you understand that you are in need of a savior. That is where you can put your joy. Here's, here's an example. Uh, when my wife, who is fantastic and wise and loving, and those are huge reasons why I've married her, she lays into me on something and says, Josh, this is stupid. Like, why are you doing this? In the moment, that is not happy. That is not a happy feeling for me. But we've had this many times where she could say, you know, what are you doing? This, is, this isn't where God has called us to be. I can find joy in that. I have to take a breath, but I have to, I, I, I can find joy that she is doing a good work in me for the long haul. In the moment, it's not happy. It's not fun. But I can find great benefit in the fact that her wisdom has helped me in the long view. Is that, is that, I think it's really helpful that we find out that, what joy is. Count it all joy when you experience trials. Because if we're looking at trials make us feel bad, yes, they do. But you should find joy in them because you need a different perspective. And that's what Christ does. That's what Christ does in the midst of our life, in the midst of our trials. Trials, then, the purpose of our trials is that they complete us. Let's, let's, uh, let's see what else it says here. It says, your faith produces steadfastness. If you have this joy, if you persevere in these, you can produce steadfastness. The steadfastness is, uh, you know, you can, I mean, you can imagine, like planting your feet, you know, getting, you know just standing firm Uh, on christ and the word literally here means like sit down (laughs) you can just sit down you don't have to run around and do all your errands you don't have to go clean up your house you don't have to tidy up who you are as a person because god has said sit down i know who you are i know what you are i love you we've got this your faith can be right here in the midst of your trials you could be steadfast you could sit down and know that i am god and know that I have got it. And when you have that steadfastness of faith, you then, verse 4, can have full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Uh, maybe not that you're going to you know, throw a pigskin a quarter mile, but that you can be complete. You can be whole. I think that's probably a good word. This perfect completeness is, is that idea of wholeness, that, that, that there won't be lacking uh, anything. I think that's exactly what it says, lacking nothing. Until you have that steadfastness in your faith, uh, James and everything else in the Bible is just going to seem like a whole bunch of words that are, that are kind of weird, uh, and they, they maybe have good ideas in them. But until we find that steadfastness in Christ, that we can sit and say, Christ has something good for me. The Bible has something good for me, and it might make me change. It's going to make me change. It demands that I change. It lets me know that I am enabled to save myself. I am very incapable and that feeling of not being able to do it and that fear of failure that's because we're human and we're not God not because we're actually failures but Christ can speak that into me and he's going to show me how his way is until we find that kind of steadfastness we will never be able to experience the full effect of the word working in our lives to complete us to build us up we have to have a long view of our faith we have to have a big view of Jesus Christ. Our trials have purpose. One of those purposes, as we've seen, is that they complete us. Our trials are there to help complete us. Our trials also do something else. They expose our inability. This is verse 5. We're not left without tools to accomplish the task. Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Okay, that's a very wise, nice way of... That's like a very diplomatic way of saying that. Um, What he's saying is, he wants us, and the wise sage says, if any of you lacks wisdom, we're supposed to, just to hint, get to the point where we realize, yeah, I lack wisdom. Like, he's just saying it nicely. So I'm going to just rephrase it to Josh's, like, I don't know, bullheaded way. You all lack wisdom, so you need to ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He says, and then rightly ask God for it, for who who gives generously. But, verse 6, let him ask God in faith, without doubting. So I think James right here does a really nice job. He says, not simply ask God, like, oh God, I need a you know, direction on, on this thing. He, he divides it and says, uh, we need to clarify what it means to ask in faith. Because that's the perspective that we're going for. We're not going just for asking questions. Like, I pray, but if my heart's in the wrong spot, if I've got the wrong view of what this is, then my prayers are just weird. So he says, we need to understand what, what in faith is. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. See, to, to pray in faith, as James is rightly explaining to us, is, is not to pray like as a wish. Like, oh God, please help this happen. Maybe this is going to, you know, blow out the candles and then, there we go, God. You know, uh, it's not a desire. It's not this, just this, this whim, like, oh God, I really, could you please make RB stay open for five minutes later because I'm late and I want to get, th-. you know, like, I mean, that's just a silly one. But uh, there are oftentimes we do those kind of things. Oh, could my team win? Could... Could that huge, long field goal kick be decided and win it for the Chiefs last night? No. That's a desire. That's a desire that we have. It's not one of those kind of prayers. It's not an obligation that if I pray enough, if I just do this thing, I don't know what it does. If I do it enough, then I'll pile up enough of the good. And when I submit the real request, bing, the scales will go and God will say, granted. It's not an obligation. In-faith kind of prayer is a confident request in God. That's what he's saying, without doubting. It's a confident request in God. I think an example of this is, uh, is, uh, is that it, it, your, your prayers, your faith itself needs to be so confident. It's as confident as you are uh, and maybe as natural as it is to take a step. Uh, is to take a step. So It's so routine and so tested over time. I mean, I just walk. I don't really think about it. I, I mean, this is like pacing. But I don't even think about this anymore. I'm not thinking like, oh, I wonder what the structural integrity of the stage is. Now, I've walked on this stage like a million times. Uh, and, and I've taken steps. I know how my body works. I can you know, walk this way or that way. And, 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 and there are things that we do just in our own walking. We don't think about... Breathing. We don't, now we do, but we don't think about taking a step, but now we probably will as we walk out of here, unless I can talk for another hour, and then we'll forget this conversation. But we don't think about it. It's just the natural thing that we do. So is prayer. Or so it should be. That's what he's saying is you need to have this steadfastness in your faith that that, that prayer just comes out so confidently that it's it's the no-brainer first thing that you're gonna do. I have a question in life, let's pray about it. I don't know how to pray about it. Well, let's pray that we know how to pray about it. If you lack wisdom on how to pray about it, well, I think it just says, just ask God. God, please give me wisdom to know how to pray. If we don't have that confidence, if we don't have that natural tendency to go, we can pray for it. But ultimately, we won't be able to to make decisions. We won't be able to understand where God is is leading us I'm not making that up that's right in here as we read on it says pray in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind a double mindedness there he says uh, he says uh, this kind of person he is double minded unstable in all of his ways see double mindedness is the opposite of this confidence in faith the steadfastness in faith Because when we have this steadfastness, we know exactly where we're planting our faith. We know exactly, confidently, naturally where that's going. It's going to be different than this double-mindedness. And and it's kind of crazy because the word is double-mindedness. I guess if I would have written language, I would have picked a different thing. But it does say mindedness. But really, double-mindedness is a condition of the heart. It's really a heart issue. See, if your hope is not firmly planted on Christ... If your heart is not confident of where the answer is, of, of who the king is, of who is, is the one who can save you, then, James says, you're like a wave of the sea. You're tossed about. If your heart doesn't know what the plan is, what the purpose of all of these trials are, you're going to try and solve them in a million different ways that aren't going to work. It's like a, like a sports competition, like, a, like a assignments. When multiple assignments, whether at work or at school, all pile up, and, and, and you, maybe you didn't have a plan, and all of a sudden you're there. I mean, what do you do? We go into triage mode. You know, what's going to get me? The, what is the weighted the most? That's how maybe I'm going to assign my my, uh, my my homework. What's going to be the most public embarrassment? Maybe that's how I'll assign what I get done first in uh, in work. Uh, what am I going to do you know, with this? You, know, you go into the locker room and try to give a pep talk to, 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 to get a plan. Now we're in this, this hole. Uh, what do we do in those? We're not really living out of a plan. We're living out of, of, of fear, of panic. We've, we've, we, we're double-minded because we've not had a, had a plan. But here's, here's the thing. Life's not a game. Life's, life's not this project that's happening. When you lack a firm foundation on, on the deepest plan, that one's going to throw everything else into a flurry of double-mindedness. That's going to be uh, the wind blowing on the waves of the ocean, of your heart, of your mind, of your decisions. Because if you don't have that firm foundation, you don't have that confidence planted in Christ, that the confidence planted in, in your identity in Him and His plan for the world, you're going to flip-flop in your decisions. You're going to be looking for answers elsewhere. It's because you've either not asked the right questions or you've not discerned the right answers to the big questions of life, to even the daily questions of life. And this kind of all goes full circle then. Asking right questions and discerning right answers is the workload of wisdom. Our trials expose our inability. I'll maybe clarify it. Our trials expose that we all need wisdom so we can ask God. Our trials are there to complete us. Our trials are there to expose that we need wisdom, but in God's grace, he allows our trials to expose our need for wisdom. Are a lot of times, uh, I think there are only two kinds of people in the world, uh, people who make New Year's resolutions and people that think making New Year's resolutions is stupid. I don't think that there's, like, middle ground. I think you're, like, one or the other. Maybe if you are middle ground, then you can tell me that there's a third way. But I really don't think that. I think that they're just the haters or the lovers. And uh, but, but but oftentimes, these New Year's resolutions, I feel like they're, I don't know, whenever I've made them... Uh, they're they're like a physical they're like a measurable thing i mean it's a goal so you need to have a measurable in it like they're they're a thing that you can you can measure i I might throw one out here for you in regards to what we're reading that maybe a new year's resolution uh, for us that isn't so much measurable would be uh would be this is to ask god first i guess a pretty simple one ask god first Asking, What I mean by that is asking God first is uh, whenever something, a question comes up, a situation comes up, kids, kids, are, kids are going crazy, work is stressful, uh, you, you, you found yourself in a, in, a, in a conversation that you don't know what to do, and they're Ask God first. And that's an amazing thing about prayer is even in the midst of a conversation, you can have a silent conversation with God to help you in that conversation. Ask God first, his ability before my action. Before I do something, ask God, what should I do? He might say, wait, and then your action is to do nothing and wait. His way before my own, because oftentimes he will show us over time the right way if we are listening to him, if we are going to his word, if we are humbly submitting to his leadership. So I want to put that to action right now. We're going to get interactive here. Um, I want you to think of a trial that is shaping you right now. What is one trial... What is one difficult thing that is shaping you right now? Uh, This is something that you can't quite nail down or solve. Uh, This is something that steals your thoughts. Uh, This is something that it seems like, uh, like the darkest hour before the dawn. So I'll ask it again. What is one trial you are being shaped by right now? Okay, you've got that in your mind. Have you asked God for wisdom in that? Now, I think that work is more important than me just talking to you about this. So I'm going to pause. Have you asked God for wisdom? If you've not, do that right now. Okay, the whole Trinity helps us in this. And we ask God for wisdom. Now the Holy Spirit comes in. Have you been attentive to the convicting and empowering guidance of the Holy Spirit. Are you being nudged? Are you ignoring a nudge? Are you being told, don't go there? Pray for discernment on that. Pray for discernment on that right now. If God gives wisdom and the Spirit gives direction, have you looked to Christ for the answers? Have you admitted that you aren't going to do it, that you aren't able to do it unless Christ can help you and show you the way of His love, of His truth? Can we take these prayers. We take them seriously. We want to be people that follow you, uh, we all can identify with a, with a trial in our life, whether that's uh, just a, a bad friendship, a, a struggling marriage, uh, a difficulty at work, uh, kind of just a, a big question of, of, of who am I and what's the point of this season of life. We, we, we put those on you. We ask that you, uh, I ask that you give us wisdom, that you, that you make us attentive to your guidance, and that you help us to identify with Christ. Amen. Our trials complete us. Our trials expose our inability. We'll finish the, uh, the passage here. Our trials clarify our true identity. That's the big point where Christ comes into this. Our, clar- our, our trials clarify our identity. Verse 9 and 10 give a contrast. And, uh, and I'll, so i will set it up. I'll read it. We'll set it up. And then we'll kind of glean from its, uh, from its fruit. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Okay, I'll rephrase that. The lowly brother uh, who is uh, lowly here is con- con- contrasted with uh, with rich. He could say poor, but, but James wants to make us aware that he's doing something different here. Uh, he's talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about lowliness. He's talking about low- lowly of, of heart. He's talking about humble uh, humility. Let the brother who is humble enough... To admit, that's the boast, let the, the lowly brother, the brother is humble enough to admit his inability, be exalted. Literally means lifted up. Jesus was exalted, lifted up into heaven, lifted up from his trials. But the brother who is humble enough to admit his inability, be exalted from his trials. Why? Because he has identified with the one who is infinitely able to overcome. Because when he's humble in heart, he says, I can't do this. But God can do this. God can show a way. Uh, verse, verse 10, we'll get the other half of the contrast. And then let the rich, uh, because it's a comparison, I'm going to add some words. Let the rich brother boast in his humiliation from trials. Now the rich are being humiliated in the trials. So the rich are those with physical strength, with, uh, with intellectual prowess, with social clout, with financial ability, with, with any of those means. It says those rich brothers, I think very much like you and I, let them boast in the inability of these momentary gifts from God to overcome trials. These things, their strength, their mind, their personality, their, 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 their charisma, or their, or their stick-to-itiveness, uh, they're, they're, they're pulling themselves up by the bootstraps-ness, their, their financial ability to cover these situations. Let them boast that the trials that are, are, are perfecting our faith are ones that can't just be strong-armed. They're ones that can't just be remedied. There is a solution, and that's Christ. Let them boast because they're being overwhelmed by their shame and their fear and their guilt to a level that these things can't do it, that they will be humiliated if they try. This is the long view. This is the long view of this comparison. The gospel is, is, is shifting us to something else. Due to the shift of the view of the gospel, the physical world no longer defines you. The gospel says that the physical world no longer defines you and I, but rather Christ defines us. And how does he define us? He says, you are dearly loved. We can overcome our fear, our shame, our guilt, Because Christ says you are loved. You are worthy. You don't need to worry about those things because I've got it. If you have these riches, but you can't identify with Christ, you are unstable and incomplete. That's James talking right there. If you have these things, but don't put that identity on Christ, you are unstable. You are incomplete. And I'd go a step further and say, and that's why you feel the way you do. That's why you feel like you can't have this, this, this wholeness or this completedness. There's something else there that you're chasing and it's not Christ. So I, I, I'll give a, a quick illustration of this. Uh, it's I think medicine gives us a, a really Really easy example of how we try and use our riches and strong arm our situation. Now, before I go in there, because medicine is just, like, I don't know, a, a hot topic or whatever. Uh, I'm for medicine. We use medicine in our house. Like, I'm not, like, railing against medicine here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe railing against uh, our, our using medicine instead of Christ. Uh, our idolatry of medicine. See, as a society, I think in America, uh, we've oftentimes medicated our anxiety rather than deal with it. Uh, we, 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 uh, now, there are real conditions, there are real things that happen, but I, I would suggest that, that too often we go quickly to the, to the medicine rather than, uh, than, than dealing with what really needs to be dealt with. I think this cycle, this, this, this system that we have set up, it attempts to overcome the trials in our own hearts, the trials in our own lives, and do it on our own. I think sometimes medicine, this is only one example of many, is us using our riches to boast in our riches and solve our problems with our riches. The problem is, we're like the most anxious people in all of history. It doesn't work. I mean, the stats show it doesn't work, it leaves us proud, medicated, and anxious. We've opted for quick remedies. and The gospel calls us to the solution. He didn't call God doesn't say, Be a Christian so that you can be proud and, and medicated and, and anxious. He says, Come to me because uh, and, and, and you can you can live, you can be whole and you can be complete through not proud medicated anxiety, but humble reliance on the peace of God. That is different. That is different. Why do you worry about all of these things? Because ultimately you you feel like your reputation is at stake. Well, your reputation before God is, it sucks, but that's okay. I love you and I've died for you. Like he gets it. You don't have to actually tell him you're bad or cover up that you're bad. He knows it. And he loves you in spite of that. See, we need a long view of our faith. We need a big view of Jesus in our lives if we're ever going to make it through this life of trials. Here are three three things I think that this long view of our faith and a big view of Christ move us towards. It moves us to a new perspective, it moves us to a new identity, and it moves us to a new purpose. Our perspective. What is the war? We really need to ask that question. What are we really fighting? Like what what are we doing? The war is in our hearts. James is going to show us this. The war is in our hearts. It's with our identity. When we think that we are the Savior, when we think that we can have the, have the solutions, then we put our hope on those things. My marriage is struggling, so I'm going to figure out someone, some other person, or, or, or myself, if I wrote it, uh, who, who has a, the silver bullet of a marriage book. We are going to put our hope in this, and by the time we are done reading through this marriage book, our marriage is going to be awesome. Well, that's not going to work. I mean, you might have an awesome marriage. You'll probably have a better marriage. You've at least been disciplined to get through it, but your hope was in the wrong place. Who's the one who reconciles all things? Christ, not the book. I'm going to have a budget and we're going to stick to it. And if we make it through this quarter, we're going to put our hope on that. And then you lose your job. Well, that throws off the budget. We need a different perspective. And our perspective is where our hope is. And ultimately, our hope is going to be where we define ourselves. If we think we can do it, then we're going to set up a whole different hope than Christ, who's got it. Christ doesn't care if you're poor. He was poor. Christ doesn't care if you're hungry. Uh, He was hungry. He was in the wilderness. He didn't have anything to eat. He was tempted to eat food and just make it easy. And he said, "Uh, no. He was persecuted. He was lied about. He was yelled at. He was spit on. What did he do? He put his hope on God. He put his hope on what actually lasts. He could have made all that stuff in in an instant. He's God. But he modeled for us a long view of a perspective which ultimately redefines our identity. Who gives you that identity? Christ gives you that identity. And he says, you are loved. You are forgiven. And that's your identity but your life is going to get a little, a little bit harder because the devil wants to take this from you. He wants to convince you that you're not worthy. He wants to convince you that I'm not telling you the truth. Christ says, I love you. You're forgiven. Now take up your cross and follow me. And that gives us our purpose. Take up our cross and follow him. What is our purpose according to James? Completeness, perfection, wholeness. He says this steadfastness is this confidence that will allow you to endure with faithfulness. To endure life faithfully, this is the life that we are designed for. We've simply gotten in the way of it. So get out of the way. Our trials in life complete us. Our trials in life expose our inability. Our trials in life... Clarify our true identity, and that is in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. He is our king. Our faith is not a fool's errand. It's not, come, (laughs) come, believe in me, now go be persecuted. And I don't know what to do there. He gives us the tools. He gives us a purpose within it. I'll end on verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray.